can see on your, if you have an outline, that Luke 22 is where we're going to be this morning. We'll go ahead and begin the process of beginning to get started. haven't traveled lately far enough away to have jet lag, but I've traveled often enough to be very tired of traveling. Oh, does she on her travel? Yes, yeah, she did travel a long, long way. Young Alati is in South Korea, so she's... she's for you? Oh, our church has to pray for... We pray for all the bachelors. Out she was a three-year-old. I was gonna say, <laughs> can't travel on a company. <laughs> and of course, just a reminder that our travelers are not yet over. We'll be gone again next Sunday, the 29th. We're leaving Thursday, and we will be back. So, all right, Luke, Luke chapter 22. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll turn our attention to this this morning. Father, uh, thank you for who you are and all that you are doing, and thank you, of course, for Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, and for his work, what he has done, and what he is continuing to do. Bless our time together. Father, help us to have good spirits and right attitudes as we think about those things that divide us denominationally. And of course, we pray above all that we would understand the right position, that we would be faithful to the text of Scripture. Help us to that end, please, we ask. Amen. All right, so Luke chapter 22. And again, what we're doing is, uh, the series is on denominations. But of course, again, I didn't want just to walk us through a variety of denominations, you know, and talk about them historically. I thought it would be more helpful to us if we talked about some of the doctrines and, and the way we view them that forms us into denominations. So we've talked, of course, about God and Christ and salvation and baptism. And by the way, because I've got a couple of lessons already done, and I, <clears throat> I want to come back and revisit a little bit more on baptism because I had a very fascinating conversation about <clears throat> um, about baptism pertaining to, <clears throat> excuse me, something that is not uncommon in our circles, which is that young children make professions of faith and get baptized, and then a number of years later question whether or not they were really saved and make another profession of faith and how we should handle baptism. And I don't know that I have all the answers to that, but I thought it was worthy of some exploration. So we're going to come back to that and We'll return to that because it's, it's, it's a, more of a baptism thing than it would ever be a denominational thing, but it is something that comes up. So anyway, so this morning, we're going to begin turning our attention for the next few weeks to the subject of the Lord's Supper or communion or, depending upon your religious background, the Eucharist um, and <clears throat> different denominations view it uh, different ways. And I don't know if this is in your outline. I've got it in my outline. But the, but the word Eucharist is actually from the Greek word thanksgiving, and it's found here in Luke twenty two seventeen, 
There is, that's, why it's, that's why it's called the, the Eucharist. So let's begin by reading together verses 14 through 23. <clears throat> and um, here is the initial, this is Luke's rendition, of course, of the initial observance of the Lord's table. And what our goal, what my goal this morning is, is for us to try and view it as much as we can through the Lord's eyes. How does he view what is happening and how does he think about uh, what is happening? So verse number 14, when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks. <clears throat> there's, there's that word again, Eucharist. And break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves, which of them it was that should do this thing. And we, of course, know that that's Judas Iscariot. But, okay. So, so let's just begin this way with ref for, the, for the sake of our outline. First of all, what Jesus served. What Jesus served. What, what did he give? And this is the Passover meal. It is at the Passover season, which is probably the main Jewish feast day. And what Jesus gave them was, first of all, bread. And we know from the Old Testament that the Passover was a meal of unleavened bread. Of unleavened bread. And then he gave them juice. And I just want to take a minute here and, and talk about this. Um, because I think that the text of Scripture indicates that it, it was simply an unfermented juice. Um, <clears throat> in every one of the gospel instances, and the Lord's table is described in detail in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is always called the fruit of the vine. It is always called the fruit of the vine. It is never called wine, although the word wine is used 22 times in the New Testament. And in fact, folks, the only place that the expression fruit of the vine is used is with reference to the Lord's table. So you don't find it anywhere else. There, are, there, could, there could be other uses of it, but there are no other uses of it. And, and my point is simply this, folks, right? I understand that, that we are a conservative assembly, and I understand that I am a fundamentalist Baptist, and I understand that I have all of the inherent discomfort bordering on obsessive convictions about the beverage use of alcohol. But I don't think that this is a beverage use of alcohol issue. 
I don't think that's, <clears throat> that's the issue at all. Leaven was permitted <clears throat> in other uses. In fact, Leviticus 23.17 explains to us that leaven was permitted as part of the Levitical sacrificial system. So we have to always be careful, if I could put this way, folks. You have to always be careful with broad sweeping statements that will not necessarily bear up in Scripture. Leaven is indicative of sin because they eat unleavened bread. And so every time you find leaven, you know, so, right? So, you know, we, we go to the parable, the parables, and, and we find that the kingdom is like somebody that hid uh, leaven in measures and the whole thing grew. And see, that's a really bad thing because leaven is really a bad thing. Leaven is not really a bad thing. Sometimes the Bible uses leaven to describe sin. Paul said, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Get rid of the sinful leaven. That was the gist of its use. But that is not the only way it is used. Okay? And as much as some of us might wish that it were so, that there is a flat-out, adamant, across-the-board, always prohibition against the beverage use of alcohol, there is not. It is, it is always dealt with carefully and cautiously but there is no widespread, overarching, under every circumstances, never ever do this. It is always sin. It just doesn't exist. Now, again, that tends to go over like a rock in congregations like ours. But nevertheless, I think that is faithful to the text of Scripture. So I'm just trying to make this observation. How, however somebody chooses to use the information or interpret the information, doesn't make it right, but it certainly lays it on their shoulders. Nevertheless, these are the facts. The New Testament uses the word wine almost 25 times. It never uses the word wine about the elements of the Lord's table. It is always called the fruit of the vine, and the New Testament never uses fruit of the vine about anything else. <clears throat> so I think, and again, I would correlate that to, uh, to the additional reality that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right, is using the leaven in its sinful sense. But, but, when it comes to the actual Feast of the Passover, there is nothing said at all about the wine or the juice or the grape as to what it consisted of. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was just that. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. <clears throat> so anyway, what did... What did Jesus serve? What did Jesus serve? He served, right? Can we, can we at least, I, I don't think we have a big fight, but right? do we understand this? That he used real bread and real fruit of the vine. And that's where I'm really trying to get, folks, because I'm sure that you're aware of this, that one of the great controversies, one of the things that divides us denominationally about the Lord's table is whether the bread and juice remain bread and juice or not. Or whether they are changed, altered into another substance. And even to, and, and right, and this is, this is if you have a Roman Catholic background or are familiar with Roman Catholic doctrine, right, this is something that Roman Catholics teach insistently and adamantly. We call it transubstantiation, the transformation of the substance 
They call it real presence. And they do that on the basis of John chapter 6. And one of the things that we're going to do next week is we will turn our attention to that very subject. That's not my intention to deal with it today. But it is kind of when it comes to, when it comes to the, the subject matter of the Lord's Supper, folks, the theological elephant in the room is this. Does the bread and juice stay bread and juice or does the bread and juice get altered in some way? Does it change its substance? So, again, we will turn our attention to that. What Jesus served was bread and juice. But even in this passage, folks, there are people who argue that Jesus is arguing that its elements, that its substance is changing. I mean, look at the passage. Verse number 19, he took bread, gave thanks, break it, gave unto them, saying, this is my body. See? See, it changed its substance. And since it is the body of Christ, I mean, and again, I'm going to deal with this, but I mean, just, right, if you're not Roman Catholic, and I did not grow up Roman Catholic, so I, I had to learn all of this from outside, but it's called the real presence because when a Roman Catholic partakes of the wafer and its substance is changed into the body of Christ, Christ is really in the bread so that his presence is real. That's what they're arguing, is that his presence is real in that bread. <clears throat> so what Jesus served was bread and juice. And again, we're just going to kind of lay that on the table. We will come back and look at that. Does Jesus actually teaching that this will somehow supernaturally, not through any natural means, be converted into his body and bread and body and blood? Secondly, let's note what Jesus said. What did Jesus say about what he served? And what he said, folks, was that his death would accomplish its purpose. You know, Jesus doesn't partake of this. When, when we look through the passage, and we're going to come back in just a minute and read again verses 15 and 18 through 18. Jesus is not approaching this as something that he hopes will be the end result. Jesus approaches this with great confidence and boldness that what he is about to do is going to accomplish its tremendous purpose. Verse number 15, With desire I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So you'll notice where he begins, I strongly desire to eat this with you before I suffer. Before I suffer. 
because I will not eat it again until the kingdom. And what is it that he is talking about being fulfilled there, folks, until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God? What will be fulfilled? And what will be fulfilled is the work of his suffering. When we are in that kingdom state, and then will be fulfilled. In Matthew 26, 29, Jesus said, Matthew tells us that Jesus said, I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Which raises this question, folks, because again, we're going to, we're going to get into this, and I'm assuming that you know that the Roman Catholics teach it as a saving sacrament. Lutherans tend to back away from that, but they certainly view it differently than we would, although so would Presbyterians view it differently than we would. But if it is a saving sacrament, in other words, if, if your salvation, and again, folks, Roman Catholicism pulls no punches on this, that it is a saving sacrament, it is an essential to salvation. Why are we doing it in the kingdom? What is the point of it in the kingdom? And I would just point out to you, and we'll look at other passages, we'll look it down here a little bit, But when Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and this is another subject that we will get to eventually toward the end of our denominational survey, folks, because another one of the things that divides us is the way we interpret the words kingdom. But when Jesus is talking in this passage about a kingdom, he has something distinctly physical in nature in mind. Not just a a spiritual kind of thing. I mean, there, there are people who are arguing that we are living in the kingdom, the fulfillment of the kingdom. This is the kingdom. And there are people who argue that heaven is the kingdom. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom, when the Old Testament talks about the kingdom, it has distinct physical elements that should not be allegorized or symbolized away into being without meaning. Look, for instance, we're still, just, we're still in Luke chapter 22. Look at verse number 28. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, folks, there's, there's a lot of substance that, that are attached to those two verses. And, of course, I think that you could see that sitting at his table, right, if you go back into the Old Testament, 
and you, and you read about sitting at the king's table. If you go back, for instance, into 1 Samuel 9, where David invites Mephibosheth to sit at his table to, to eat at the, at the king's expense as one of his welcomed companions. This is what these men have, but that's not all that they have. They will have their own thrones and they will have their own responsibilities. There is a de- now again, we could just go, well, that doesn't really mean, and I'm getting way ahead of myself, well, that doesn't really mean that. That's just representative of, of the kingdom, but the, the Bible doesn't really talk like that. Or, or Luke chapter 24 and verse number 39 Verse number 39, one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Folks, in order for there to be a kingdom, you need a physically resurrected Savior. And there are distinct, again, physical overtones. So what Jesus, what did Jesus say? To go back to our outline, what did Jesus say? He said that his death would accomplish its purpose. And part of that purpose, folks, is securing for himself the kingdom. The Father has appointed me a kingdom. I'm going to get that kingdom, and I'm appointing you a place in that kingdom. And you'll have a place in that kingdom. And then Jesus said, back to Matthew, or back to Luke chapter 22. On his part, Jesus said that his death would accomplish its purpose. And then Jesus instructed us as to our part. As to our part, we do it in remembrance of him. Luke twenty-two nineteen. He took bread, gave thanks, break it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And, and one, of the, one of the ways that we describe what we do, folks, that, that again, by the way, if you're not very familiar with this, right, is really held in dim view by many other denominations, is that we hold to a memorial view of the Lord's Supper. As one Presbyterian brother said of us, We don't believe in real presence, but neither do we, like you Baptists, believe in the real absence of the Lord either. Now, I don't think that we believe in the real absence, and I'm going to ask you if you would to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll come back to Luke chapter 22.
All right, let's look at verse number 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he come. And that word show means to declare or to state. Right? We do it in remembrance. We do it as a memorial. We do it as a public declaration. There, there is a very real sense, folks, in which when we observe the Lord's table, and this is one of the reasons that it is always done as a church body. Right? It's never done as a private individual ordinance because there is a publicity to it. Not a, not a sinful look at me publicity, but there is a publicity to what we do. When we are taking the bread and the juice, we are making a declaration to those around us that we are participating in the work of Christ. That we are accepting his sacrificial gift for us. Remember, it was his body for us. It was his blood for us. And I would just point out, folks, that we do not do that, or at least we are not supposed to do that, in some kind of ignorance of the body of Christ. Let's continue to read here. Verse number 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. What is the Lord's body for us? We are the Lord's body. We are the Lord's body. Remember when Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am in the midst thereof. What is he talking about there? What is he talking about there in light of the fact that he also said his spirit would come and live inside of everyone that believes? If his spirit lives inside of everyone that believes, what is the point of saying when two or more are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them? Folks, that is, that is an anticipation of what the local church is. It is the body of Christ. So I'm jumping way ahead of myself again. But, but the idea that when a Baptist church or in any congregation of believers who takes the memorial view of the Lord's Supper does this as if what we are doing is something that has no real connection to the Lord. That is an unjust accusation. If we're doing it properly, we are aware of the fact that Jesus gave his own individual body and blood for our salvation and then constituted for himself his body, the church. 
And this is one of the reasons that to participate unworthily is, is the issue. It is to desecrate not only his individual sacrifice, but all the rest of those people who are making a statement in sincerity. So, what do we do? What did Jesus say? He said, my death will accomplish its purpose all the way out into the kingdom. Not, I sure hope this is going to work and maybe someday we'll get some followers and maybe it'll be better than we had ever hoped, but there is coming a kingdom and you have a place in that kingdom and is the kingdom that my father gave me and I'm going to get it by going to the cross and dying and I have a place for you and I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. So we do it in remembrance from him. Let's go back then to Luke chapter 22. What did Jesus say? He said his death would accomplish his purpose. He said we do it, we observe it in remembrance of this. He said his death is the new covenant, verse number 20. Likewise also the cup after supper saying this cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. Now this this covenant of course had been promised. How am I doing on time? We got plenty of time. Let's, Let's take a moment and turn to two Old Testament passages. We're going to look at another one this morning that I think is going to make the argument as well. But look first of all at Jeremiah 31. And as always, folks, when we read these kind of passages, we want to remember not only what the passage is, but why it is where it is. To to whom is God saying this? He is is saying this to the nation of Israel as he is in the process of systematically dismantling it. He is tearing it apart brick by brick, building by building, person by person. Person. And to those people, this is what the Lord says, verse number 31 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then what follows, folks, in beginning in verse number 35, is one of the most reinforceable assurances that that is going to happen. That any Jew who is reading his Old Testament should be able to notice the sunrise and the seasons and go, you know what, the new covenant is coming. The new covenant, well, actually, the new covenant has come. And then let me ask you to turn to Ezekiel 36. Again, a companion man written at a companion time. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel and Jeremiah were contemporaries, and the difference between them is that Ezekiel was carried away captive and Jeremiah wasn't. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 22, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God. When I shall be sanctified in you, before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and ye shall be my people and I will be your God. So there are two places in the Old Testament prophets that predict this new covenant. And the nature of this new covenant, which is an internalized rather than an external relationship with the law. And it will also involve the forgetting of sins. This is something that the Old Covenant under Moses does not do. Which, by the way, to return again to 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 the doctrinal position of real presence... We're not trying to be difficult and cantankerous and just simply anti-Roman Catholic because there's a long history with Roman Catholicism. But because of the fact that we keep our sinfulness always in front of us as if it's never been fully addressed by reenacting the sacrifice of Christ in a real sense. Jesus died for you last Sunday. Jesus is dying for you this Sunday. Jesus will die for you next Sunday. We don't want to do any... Now look, we are people safe from our sins and our sins are a never-ending problem to us, right? But understand something, folks. From God's perspective, they have been forgiven and cast into the depth of the sea and put behind his back. That is, that is his argument about our sins. That is his position. That is something that can happen only under the new covenant, which is one of the reasons, if you will jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 8, that the new covenant, it's not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons that the new covenant is so superior to the old covenant. So there's, in, in all this, folks, to, to get back, we'll come back to, to tying it to the Lord's Supper. But Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 6. <clears throat> but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. 
which was established upon better promises. Right? The, the promises of the old covenant were, if you keep it, you can live. And the promise of the new covenant is, <clears throat> I will give you my spirit and write my laws in your inward parts and I won't remember your sins. Those are better promises. Verse number seven, for if that first had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, <clears throat> saith the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest, and I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities, will I remember no more. In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. <clears throat> which, <clears throat> if I could just point out, is a biblical doctrinal reality and is still a challenge for the people of God to come to full grips with, isn't it? We, we are still navigating through the law of Moses and its importance to us. With reference to the Lord's table, folks, what did Jesus say? My blood, my body is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. Right? The Jews, I mean, you know, we read that. I'm not saying we read it differently, but here are Peter, James, John, and the other apostles who know that there is a promise of a new covenant coming. And here is Jesus I want to eat this with you before I suffer. This is it. This is it. And this is the reason, folks, that not very many days later, the Spirit of God will come. And the Spirit of God will come in great power upon those men. Because this is the new covenant. So there's no new covenant without the death and resurrection of Christ. That is not found in Jeremiah 31, is it? That is not found in Ezekiel 36, is it? There's just a promise of a coming new covenant. Not the explanation that the new covenant will only come by the death of the mediator. But that is exactly what happens. So, if I could just summarize, I'm just going to wrap this up and we will be done. Okay? And again, I'm looking at this primarily through this denominational lens. Jesus never says that there is anything powerful about the elements. The power is in the death of his body and in the shedding of his blood, which is represented in the elements, and I think that we can establish that from John chapter 6, which is my hope to do next week. Okay, I'm going to stop there. Okay, I was going to say, yeah, I was going to, I, 